that the left disrespects them. The linchpin of that is the left's attitude towards religion and spirituality, in which religiophobia is almost universal in major parts of the left. The feeling that we give them is that if you're religious or you're spiritual, then you are probably at a lower level of intellectual and spiritual and psychological development. That's Michael Lerner, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Michael Lerner on Faith, Politics, and the Left, part one of a special two-part program. These are times of deceit, rage, and fear. Well, you might say it's always been like that, but it seems the intensity of this moment is more acute. The coarseness of discourse is sharper. The rancor is deeper. Maybe the pervasiveness of social media accounts for some of it. How can we navigate the treacherous currents that are running through our politics and by extension into our personal lives? What is the intersection of faith, politics, and the left? Is it possible to reach out to those who espouse views that are diametrically opposed to ours? How to do that? Rabbi Michael Lerner says many on the left are too quick to dismiss people who are religious. To reach people you disagree with, he says, you can't be condescending and arrogant. Rabbi Michael Lerner is the editor of Tikkun magazine. He's a leading voice for peace, justice, and spiritual renewal. He's the recipient of Morehouse College's King Gandhi Award for his work for peace and nonviolence. He's the author of Jewish Renewal, The Left Hand of God, and Revolutionary Love. He spoke at the Boulder Bookstore in Boulder, Colorado, in mid-January 2020. First of all, I wanted to say something about how I get to be able to talk about what's going on in America. I was a psychotherapist, became a psychotherapist after doing a PhD in philosophy and then getting booted out of the universities after I was indicted by the federal government as one of the Seattle Seven for organizing anti-war demonstrations. The reason I went into psychology was because I wanted to understand what was going on with middle-income working people. And eventually got the position of being the principal investigator of a study uh, sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. And then that continued long after that study was uh, officially over. We focused in particular on why a section of middle-income working people who had been supporters of the liberal and progressive forces in this country, or some segment of them, many of them members of uh, labor movements, why they were moving to the right politically when it was the, their economic interests were more greatly supported by the liberal and progressive forces. This seemed like a very curious reality, and we wanted to understand it. But what we learned was the following. Number one issue, that a very large number of the people in the middle, middle-income working people have as a strong need something that most of the rest of us also have a strong need for, namely for a sense of recognition and respect. And what they told us was that when they had been in the liberal and progressive world, they weren't getting that recognition and respect. That on the contrary, they felt that when they were in liberal and progressive movements, 
that they were always always hearing people talking about, we've got to reach out to the working class. Now, they were the working class. <laughs> and they were there, and they were relatively invisible to the upper middle class, academically trained, either professionals or others who were in those movements. While they were there, they were hearing things being said that were really put-downish of their, kind, their people, their middle-income working people. They felt really disrespected. And that was a very, very important element in what made them feel like they didn't really belong in the liberal and progressive world. Now, this disrespect was not like, we don't want you here. On the contrary, what they told us is, we always felt that the movements wanted working people to be there for their demonstrations and be there for their candidates running for office. But at some deep level, they thought of the people in those people, those others, as on a lower level, a lower level than they were. So that was one important issue, okay? They didn't feel cared for, and they didn't feel respected. Now, this manifested in another important way, and that is the deep religiophobia in the left. The liberal and progressive forces were militantly secular and often conveyed a sense that if you were into religion of some sort, you are on a lower level of intellectual and psychological development. So here's what they told us, okay? That in some way, they felt that the message they were getting was, okay, if you're religious, fine, but if you hang out with us long enough, you will probably evolve to a higher level of consciousness in which you will see how ridiculous your religious beliefs are. Now, obviously, this doesn't apply to the section of the liberal and progressive world, very important section, that is the African-American community, where many of them had connections to African-American churches. But they did have, those who were not connected in that way, often have that attitude. Those, particularly in the the white section of the um, liberal and progressive world, gave the feeling to people that, They were not uh, sophisticated. They were not smart. And so what they told us was that if we're going to be part of that world, we don't talk about that part of our lives. We keep it to ourselves because it's not something that's respected. In fact, it's dissed in that world. One story I I had of a, a woman about 25 years old tells us at a bookstore where I was talking about this. She says, I got this call from a guy that I was really interested in. And he asked me if I could meet him for a brunch on Sunday morning. I was so excited. And I said, oh, I'd love to. I, I can't come in the, in the morning because I go to church. But in the afternoon, I'll, I'll be happy to be with you. He says in response, church, I thought you were a liberal. That reaction was part of the culture of the liberal and progressive world. I'm not saying that everybody would have reacted that way, but I'm saying that the feeling that we are too sophisticated to believe in anything religious or or anything connected to a spiritual realm. Where does this come from, that kind of sense? It comes from what I call the religion that dominates capitalist society. And that's the religion that 
I call, well, everybody calls in some way, scientism. Now, scientism is not science. Science is the study of the physical world, and it uses as part of its criteria, what do we study when we're studying the physical world? We study those aspects of the physical world that are observable, they are repeatable, and they are subject to empirical verification or of measurement, if not in actuality, at least in principle. This is science. It's a key in the struggle that made capitalism successful in its struggle against feudalism. When it was struggling against feudalism, feudalism was supported by its association with the church and its belief that the political and economic order was sanctioned by God. So the the new capitalist class that emerged eventually, trying to struggle for its own primacy, and now I'm talking about the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, adopted science as an important part of what was available through it. But it also took another step, and this is the step that became religion. It extended the scientific method to all reality and started to say that that which is real, anything that's real, must be either observable and repeatable and subject to either empirical verification or at least to measurement. Now, that's scientism. Scientism is the religion that has dominated the the last two and a half centuries of the capitalist world. Now, why do I call it a religion? Because the fundamental core belief on which it's all founded, namely that that which is real or that which deserves to be respected in the public sphere is that which is subject to empirical verification or can be measured. When you take that statement and say, okay, um, what's the uh, empirical verification for that or the measurement for it? It turns out that there's no way that you can empirically um, validate its core statement. Uh, There is no way you can measure its claim that this is what is real and this is what deserves to be respected. Do you see what I'm saying? This is rather a religion. Now, it's a very popular religion some and very powerful religion that became so powerful, in fact, that in our language, when we talk about something that is not worthy of attention, not worthy of respect, we call it nonsense. Nonsense. Why would that be the word that you'd use to dismiss ideas or... Because we are all living in a world in which that scientism dominates the consciousness of everyone. And so it's just common sense is what everybody thinks, isn't it? Well, what's the problem with scientism? Scientism, now get it, remember, I'm not putting down science. I'm putting down scientism. That is the inappropriate appropriation of scientific method to deal with all of human experience, okay? Scientism leads people to then feel very unsure about their ability to to take ethical beliefs, to take spiritual beliefs, to take religious beliefs, or or even to talk about love or kindness, generosity. All of these things are dismissed as inappropriate for the public sphere. They are fine for private life. That's the compromise that the capitalist order made. You can have that in your personal life. 
You can have that outside of our public sphere, but don't bring that into the public sphere. Now, of course, what is the in the public sphere the thing that is most easily verifiable through sense datum and measured? Answer, money. Money, and so more and more, more and more and more, people learn that the bottom line of, of our public life is how much money uh, you, you generate in whatever you're doing. That's what's to be respected. That's to be valued. It's the easiest thing to be subject to the empirical method. This then shapes Marxism and the left consciousness. Marxism presents itself not as a, an ethical system. Instead, it presents itself primarily as a science of society. And its scientific method is going to show that capitalism will um, be over, uh, replaced by socialism. And unfortunately, uh, that then becomes the dominant way that people in uh, left movements, not necessarily they don't end up all being Marxists, but they end up being tremendously shaped by Marxist consciousness in what then in the 20th century becomes the communist movement and the socialist movement. What, what's the problem here? What's left out are the values that actually many, many people care about. Love, kindness, generosity, caring for each other, caring for the world. Those are values that actually, on the one hand, are the reasons why most people on the left came into the left in the first place. But when they go out into the public sphere, they rarely talk about those values. It's almost never that you hear people in the, in the liberal and progressive world talking that way in public. So we went to investigate this with people who are, work in the various think tanks in Washington or who were professionals in uh, social change movements. That's people who had jobs in social change movements. And we asked them, why, why don't you talk this way? And the answer was, because those things will make us look like we're weak, like we're not on the level of what public discourse is supposed to be. We're purely subjective and will be ridiculed out of any public conversation. And to a large extent, that's true because the people who own and control the media largely do dismiss anybody who talks that way. You could look at Marianne Williamson's campaign as an example of the way that when she wrote, uh, brought those things out, most of the, now I'm talking about the liberal world, the progressive world, dismissed her completely and didn't, you know, said, well, you know, sure, but that has no place for us in politics. So that was a, a big error, a tremendous error that the liberal and progressive world has been making to dismiss that level. Now, on the other hand, and this maybe some of you remember that in the 2004 Republican National Convention, Schwarzenegger, the governor of California, in giving one of the main speeches says, you know those Democrats and those liberals, they're all girly men. They're not strong. They don't know how to defend our country. They can't stand up to the attack that just happened in, uh, at the Twin Towers in 9-11. They're girly men. Now, of course, my reaction at that time I'm the editor of Tikkun magazine in the magazine and other places. I said, you know what the liberal and progressive forces should be saying? You know what? 
it's good to be a girl. There's nothing wrong with girliness. Actually, it's something that the rest of the society could learn. Not your stereotype of it, but at least the, the values of being caring and soft. But the point is that in the liberal world, people are still afraid of being seen as weak, as girly. Whereas I believe that we should be affirming that those characteristics that are wrongly attributed to all women, the way that uh, many w- women were leaning in, as the famous book had it uh, several years ago, um, was to say, okay, we can be like men. See, we're not really stuck in that stereotype. Of course, it's not true that women are all that way, and it's not true that men are not that way. But the point that the capitalist order was trying to make was, if you want to be taken seriously, then don't talk about those softer values. And of course, what I'm here to say is just the opposite, that what is needed is a different kind of, uh, different kind of left. So those were two elements that were very much weakening the, the left because it was not able to articulate and has still to this day rarely articulated the core values that led people into the left in the first place because they think that that will turn other people off, make them look weak, will definitely get them be disparaged in, in the mass media and um, will hence weaken their possibility of being influential. And of course, the closer you get to Washington, D.C., the more you get this re- reality. Okay, it may not be so true in Boulder. I hope it's not. But, and it's not as true in a few other, you know, maybe in Cambridge and maybe in Berkeley and San Francisco and a few other places. But it is true largely for the population that's the left that are in the liberal and progressive forces that they pay attention to this and keep to themselves and not in public discourse what is actually moving them in that direction. Now that's I'm giving you a part of the part of the issues that um, that we learned in this in this study. The next issue is much more complicated. It's connected to a core truth that a core falsehood, I should say, that our society, a capitalist society, has been teaching from the get-go from the last 400 years, and that is the society that they wanted to create and now they claim have created, starting with the French Revolution and then with the triumph of capitalism globally in the last uh, 50 to 100 years, is this. They no longer engage in denying that there is a huge inequality in the society, a huge inequality between those the the upper 1%, certainly the upper 10%, of the society, as you probably know, the upper 1% that own about 40% of the wealth of the society, the upper 10% that own close to 70% of the wealth of the society, that huge difference they no longer deny. They even allow it in their newspapers, okay? You're allowed to know this now. 20 years ago, you wouldn't have ever had that mentioned. But now it's mentioned. But the answer that they give is the following. This is a meritocracy, a society ruled by merit. If you work hard enough and you are smart enough, you can be part of that upper 10% or maybe even a part of the 1%. Now, this worldview is not just taught in the media and not just taught by the politicians. It is also taught in the schools and it is also taught by our parents, not just ruling class parents, 
but almost everybody in the society have, have parents who are teaching them that if they study hard enough in school and if they develop those skills that they're taught to develop, that they could be success, whatever that means. Now, unfortunately, that's not true. What actually is true is that you're living in a class-stratified society in which the amount of class mobility is tiny. The New York Times did a study of this actually around 2008, and it showed that, that the class mobility was roughly between 1% and 2% that could move from the working class to, let's say, the upper middle class. or the I mean, they had almost nobody making it into the top 1%. And, of course, the... The people who have put this idea forward always bring out the woman or the women who, who have finally their glass ceiling removed from them as examples to prove that any, any woman could make it now. Uh, and similarly, African-Americans rolled out, the few who are put into positions of power rolled out to help reinforce the vision that there's really a meritocracy here. But it's not, the, it's not true. Now, what's so terrible about this meritocracy thing? Okay, why is this connected to why the liberal and progressive forces aren't successful? Number one, what we learned, and this is, uh, may amaze you, most people in the society carry with them a self-blaming story about what they did wrong or who they are that's wrong. Who they are that's wrong often is something that women have come into. I wasn't born attractive enough. Otherwise, I would have attracted people to marry me who would have been more successful and helped me on the path up. That's one level of it. But there's another level that goes for women and men as well. It's that I wasn't smart enough or I screwed up. Maybe I did the wrong thing in high school. I didn't study when I should have. I was too much into sports. I was too much into social life or who is going to like me and who's not going to like me or whatever. Or I did the same thing in college. I made wrong choices. Or maybe my first job, I I wasn't charming enough to my supervisors or I wasn't uh, attractive enough to my supervisors or I wasn't smart enough to show them how I could advance their career and be useful to them. But I screwed up. Almost everyone has a story like this. Maybe it happened somewhat later in your life. Okay, I had options and I made the wrong choice and here, there, or the other way. Almost everyone is carrying a self-blaming story. And these self-blaming stories for middle-income working people is so painful that they often repress it. They don't want to think about it, but they hold it. How did we learn about this? Well, it took about eight or ten sessions before people finally were able to go there to talk about this. And it happened in part uh, when you'd have one person talk, then other people in the group would say, hey, listen, that's not true. Don't you realize that there were these obstacles, et cetera, for you? And then gradually other people would be able to say, yeah, but what about you? You also have, you know, tell us your story about that. So almost everyone carries these self-blaming stories and that makes them feel terrible. They rarely talk about it with their best friends even. Maybe they're a super best friend, but they don't want to be seen as a failure. They don't want to, and so they don't want to talk about themselves in those ways, but they feel that way about themselves. And that is really upsetting. People carry around a self-blaming story. Now, what the right did was it came forward to people and said, 
you don't have to blame yourself. This is really not a personal issue. You didn't fail in some way. It's a social issue. And that overcoming self-blaming was a tremendous relief to many, many people. However, the, the flip side of that is the reason why things are so tough for you is because there are these others who are screwing up this society. And there was a time when they weren't here or they weren't doing this, and then it was better. Now, who are these others? Well, as capitalism has become global, in any society that you can talk to, look at, there will be the demeaned others, and those are the ones that are blamed. So in Europe, and between 1900 and 1945, the primary demeaned other were, were the Jews. In the United States, the Jews didn't have to play that role, at least at first, because there were African Americans. African Americans became the primary demeaned other, first because that gave uh, white racists the ability to justify racism. They're less than us. But after, after when there was the, the attempt at reconstruction and then the uh, renewal of oppression of African Americans as the uh, reconstruction was uh, torn apart by a uh, combination of, of Democrats in the North and racists in the South and whatever. Anyway, I should say Republicans also in the North. Now it's not just African Americans and it's also Native Americans who also became part of the demeaned others. It's uh, gays and lesbians. It's feminist women. It's most recently asylum seekers and immigrants of all sorts. All of them are being blamed. But for many, many people, there's a relief in that. That, that is a decreasing in self-blame. Now, why would you have to go to the right to get decrease in self-blame? Well, you don't have to if we had a left that understood and talked to this issue, that spoke to the issue of the pain that people are in. What we learned was that most Americans not only have that, but they have a tremendous amount of pain in their lives. A lot of that pain does have to do with self-blaming. But the other part of it has to do with jobs that are completely, let's say, almost crazy-making in the following way, that they make it impossible for people to feel that what they're doing with their lives has some higher meaning than collecting money. Now, this was the hardest thing for our investigative team to believe, because like so many other professionals, the professionals in our team had the following prejudice. We, the professionals, we, the uh, highly educated, we have, let's call it meaning needs, we have a need for meaning and purpose in our lives. But them, the working class, they just care about money. They're, they're only driven by material interests. So it was very difficult for our team to hear when we got down to deeper levels and when people were really talking honestly with us, to hear that there was a very large section of middle-income working people who wanted a different thing that wanted to have their life connected to some higher meaning and purpose and were extremely frustrated every day when they came home from work at the work that they were doing because the only justification that they had for the work they were doing is it, it makes it possible for me to put, feed my family and pay for the heat and you know pay for the mortgage or whatever. But that's not what we want in our lives. And in fact, we're hoping that we can eventually 
retire and with some kind of pension be able to do what we actually want to do with our lives, but we can't do it now. We asked people how they felt about this. They said, we hate it. We hate it. We hate it. And then we said, well, okay, then let's change it. To which they said, impossible. Can't be changed. Why? Uh, It can't be changed because... Um, everybody's just out for themselves. So they'll never build a different kind of society. That's what capitalism is about. It's about everybody making it for themselves. So we asked them, wait, is this true about your friends? Is that all that they care about is themselves and advancing their own self-interest? And most, nine out of 10 people responded this way. No, it's not true about uh, my, my friends. It's just true about everyone else. Okay? Now, where did they get this Well, they got that partly from the world of work and partly from the media, which presents people as always uh, advancing their own narrow self-interest, even before Trump and what they call reality television. Long before that, every, you know, if you watch the cartoons are fed to, to little kids. So many of them are about one animal getting power over another one or one animal outsmarting another one. Rarely do you see a cartoon that focuses on cooperation and caring for each other. That's not what is supposed to be. And so kids already get the message, oh, this is how it is. And of course, by the time they're in school and told that, okay, you're going to be graded and you've got to get good grades if you're not going to get through the next hoop and the next hoop and the next hoop that will eventually lead you to the college, that will eventually lead you to the graduate school or professional school, which will eventually lead you to a job that will give you this money. You're listening to Michael Lerner on Faith, Politics, and the Left, part one of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and for Rabbi Lerner's book, Revolutionary Love, by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Now, why isn't the left talking about that? Well, part of the reason is because there's a section of the left that is part of the top 10 to 20% of the population economically. And although they are very wonderful people, and I'm not putting them down in any way. Anyway, wonderful people on the left and anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic, great. But they don't understand the class structure and they actually believe that capitalism can't be all bad because it's recognized me as being valuable. You see, I succeeded. I've made it. I'm not in the 80% of the population that is struggling. I'm in the 20% that is secure. So I can't get the energy to want to struggle against this social order, but I can struggle against some of its worst sins. And I'm glad. And they're my allies and I love them for being involved in that. But it explains why, in their influence in the liberal and progressive world, do not allow us to go to dealing with the issue of capitalism. Now, that pain that I'm talking about, that is brought home every day from the workplace, and that ends up being expressed often in ways that undermine loving relationships, because people are so filled with frustration and anger, and they have no way of letting it out, and they often ended, uh, let it out unconsciously and unintentionally on their spouse or on their kids. 
then that plays a major role in undermining loving relationships. And so you have, as these loving relationships start to be more and more affected by the world of work, more and more you find people in the United States, the level of divorce going up to 50%, it may have been down now to 45% or something like that. But huge numbers of people then feeling also insecure about their most, you know, the place that they in previous generations thought we could bring them security. Namely, I'm married, okay? I now have a partner who's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Now, as it turns out, when so many people are getting divorced, close to half the population getting divorced, people are thinking, wait a second, I don't know if that isn't me. I might be part of that percentage. And what are we learning in this society? We're learning to look out for number one. Well, my partner is learning the same thing that I'm learning. So if he or she thinks she can cut a better deal with somebody else, as a rational maximizer of self-interest, of course, she's going to move into that other relationship because that's what it is to be a rational person in this society is to maximize your own self-interest without regard to the consequences for others. So this then makes people feel very unsafe they're looking for some safety. They're looking for some security. And the place where people got it in the past is not there for most people because most people don't know if they're going to be in the 50% that did divorce or the 50% that did it. Okay. So this adds tremendous insecurity even for people who never get divorced, etc. But when they meet the left, what does the left say? Well, the left, instead of turning to them and saying, hey, this is a society which undermines love and kindness and generosity. Instead, the left says there are demeaned others and we're standing by them. But for the rest of you, white working class people, and particularly men, you don't deserve our caring and support. On the contrary, and then you get, in at least some sectors of the left, not everybody at all, you get a, a message that's conveyed that says, we actually think that the racism in this society is your fault if you're a white person. You are a privileged white person. You get privilege in this society by virtue of being white. The privilege being that you're not being killed by policemen. Okay? Or you're a man. There's a sexism in this society. So you are responsible for sexism. And you're a privileged person here. Now, you might say, wait a second, I've been in the liberal world for a long time. I've never said that. And nobody else I know has ever said that. So what I want to tell you is, I am not reporting on what you actually said. I'm reporting on what they heard, okay? How they heard what the left was saying, because that's what I know about, okay? Is what is being communicated. And what's being communicated is a set of put down messages. Now, if you wanna know where do most people in this society who are not in the liberal and progressive world, and by that liberal and progressive world, I'm talking about, let's say the 60 million people who identify with the Democratic Party and, or more generally, who believe that the government has an appropriate role to play in offsetting some of the worst effects of the free marketplace. And the right are those who believe that the government should not play any role in uh, offsetting that, that the free marketplace will resolve all the problems by itself if left alone and not regulated in any way. So those are who the left and right are. If you're not in the left and you don't know people in the left, where do you hear that message? Where do, you, where do you hear the message of what the left thinks about you? Well, you look to who are their public representatives, who are the people who are elected to public office or who they put up for office. So I don't think I need to remind you 
that Hillary Clinton's most famous outside of the liberal and progressive world for having said about those who are not yet with us that half of those who are not with us are a, um, a bundle of deplorables. That she, that she said that. Now, leave it to, of course, Fox, Fox News and uh, all of the other publications owned by the wealthy, okay, which means almost all the ma- major publications in the country, did everything they could to amplify that, to make sure that everybody knew that that's what she said. But that is what she said, okay? Now, here's another story, okay? One of the people we interviewed was a woman who went down to southern states to go door to door before the 2016 election. And she's staying with a friend, and at, to, at the end, she wants to go back to vote to her own state. So she tells her friend, I'm going back. And, you know, but just one thing, at least you, the person I've been staying with, you're not going to vote for Trump, are you? you vote for Hillary, right? And this other woman says, well, I haven't decided yet. So my friend says, look, I know what, what you mean. You must mean that you're feeling embarrassed to tell me that if you're not saying, then you're probably going to go for Trump. Well, she says, no, it's not really true. I'm not sure for sure, but I want to tell you something. I am not a deplorable. Okay, now this is, this is an upper middle class woman, but nevertheless, she feels the put down. And so when people feel that the message from the left is, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough. We believe in the meritocracy, it's a meritocratic system. Or more frequently, we know that you're living a life of privilege. The message that people get is, we don't like you. We don't like who you are. We want your votes. And if you read our positions on questions A, B, and C, you'll see that we have a more rational position. And the truth is that Close to 70% of the population on most, not all, but on most issues, they agree more with the left than with the right. But that's not how they vote. Because when it comes to voting and it comes to who they're going to support politically, they don't go only with their head. They go with their heart. Uh, And the liberal and progressive world need to speak to the heart. And rarely do we do that. You rarely hear people speaking in some way from their actual heart. When they try to speak about their heart, all they're really doing is speaking about their own self-interest and why they're the best candidate. But they're not speaking about what are the pain that people are in that would lead them to go to far away from the liberal and progressive world. They rarely address that. And most people hear from the left a different message, that you're not okay. Particularly, you're not okay if you're white. Particularly, you're not okay if you're a man. And again, I'm not saying that you are saying this. I'm saying this is what they are hearing and that there needs to be a different message. It's very upsetting to me to recognize that we're going into 20, that we're now in 2020 with a new election coming up and no political leader of the Democratic Party has gotten up and said, I reject what Hillary Clinton said about the American public. You are not all deplorables. I respect you even if You disagree with me and I disagree with you on your politics. I don't see you as less than. I see you as people who are equally valuable to me and to the people who vote in the way that I want them to vote. And I want you to know that that's true of most of us in the liberal and progressive world. We care about you. We want you to be with us. But we definitely do not disrespect who you are, even though we do disrespect some of the policies that have been followed by the Trump administration, et cetera. But rarely is that, I mean, I've never heard that from 
any of the national leaders of the Democratic Party or the, the major candidates. With the rare exception of coming close to this, Bernie is coming close. But now, I'm going to say one or two more words about, so what should we be saying? Well, what should, we should be saying is that we want a different kind of society. And the way we summarize it is, we need a new bottom line. The old bottom line was maximize money and power. The new bottom line says that every institution, our corporations, our economy, our legal system, our political system, our cultural system, our educational system, uh, the way that we treat people, whether in schools or whether we treat uh, the elderly, that what should be judged efficient and rational productive from our standpoint is the degree to which any of these institutions maximize people's capacity to be loving and caring, kind and generous, ethically and environmentally sensitive, capable of responding to other human beings as embodiments of the sacred rather than looking at other human beings primarily from the standpoint of what can I get from you? How will you advance my interests? What needs of mine will you satisfy? And looking at the earth and this universe with awe and wonder and radical amazement at the grandeur of the universe and not look at the earth simply as a, a resource to be taken for human needs. Now, that doesn't mean that it's evil to take some of those resources for human needs, but we don't want to look at this earth solely from that way. We want to look at this earth also as our mom, our mother that evolved human life and other, other animal life, and that this deserves to be respected and cared for and responded to with awe and wonder. That new bottom line should be what a liberal and progressive world would be about. A shorter way of saying it is the caring society is what we're for. Caring for each other and caring for the earth. That's what we're about. Now, what does that amount to in practice? Describing in detail an environmental program, a program for the work world, a program for healthcare, a program that take these values seriously. So here, as I said, is the other thing that the left has to move towards is putting forward a positive vision of the world that we want. How to take this new bottom line and apply it is something that I've thought about a lot and I've talked about a lot, but haven't put it into practice yet because it takes a societal transformation. Societal transformation? Are you crazy, Michael? You know, Rabbi Lerner, you're living in a different world than us. It's, not, it's never going to happen. Okay, so here, here's what I want to say. Most of the people in this room have lived through a period in which when there was segregation in society, and Martin Luther King Jr. started to organize uh, demonstrations, most of the other African-American leaders around him said, don't do it. D narrow your demand to something concrete and realizable. Don't say you're going to take on segregation. It's, you'll never get that change. When the women's movement, the second wave of feminism, uh, started in the 1960s and early 70s, there were small groups of women in Boulder and uh, San Francisco and Berkeley and Washington, D.C. and Boston and Ann Arbor and a few other places, London, Paris, about a total of several hundred women at first. And they were saying, uh, we want to overcome patriarchy. Now, most of the women around them, much, much less the men around them, said, dear, uh, you, you don't understand. Patriarchy has been with us for the last 10,000 years. You can't take on patriarchy. That's crazy. You're delusional or, you know, you're so unrealistic. Okay, I say, thank God that those people were unrealistic. 
because the changes that have been made, now I'm not saying we've gotten rid of racism and I'm not saying we've gotten rid of patriarchy, but the amount of advances that have happened far surpassed what any of those women thought would be possible. The changes not only occurred in the United States and in Western Europe, but all over the world, the status of women has changed dramatically as a result of those struggles. You know, and more, more recently, the struggle of gays and lesbians to have legalized marriage. And many other struggles have been won when the people put them forward, small groups of people, they were told, this is totally unrealistic. Narrow your, narrow your concerns. So what I want to say to you, this is another um, sort of sum up of uh, Rabbi Michael Lerner's teaching. Don't be realistic. Don't be realistic. Don't, because being realistic means listening to those in power who control the media or control the political systems who are telling you that what you want is not something that can be achieved. So narrow your vision to something small that can make a small change and get, eventually you'll get the changes you want. Well, that's been the approach, actually, of many in the environmental movement. And, uh, and although there have been some small changes and more people will tell you, oh, yeah, well, I'm recycling or whatever, actually, the destruction of the earth has gotten more intense, not less intense, since the environmental movement started. It hasn't taken on some of the fundamentals. And one of those fundamentals is that you're living in a society which encourages selfishness and looking out for number one. But that then means that everybody, when they're making their decisions about what to consume, don't take into account other people. And when they consider larger changes, like trying to reduce or possibly even have to eliminate the use of cars, automobiles, or and develop a whole different kind of system of transportation and develop ways in which people don't have to travel very far to their workplace. And, and a zillion other ch changes that are large-scale changes that are needed in order to save the planet from environmental destruction. People are dismissed when they talk about that because everybody thinks, well, nobody else will do that. Everybody's just out for themselves. So they'll never make those choices. So why should I? Why should I have to do that? Okay, I can recycle. Okay, I can even vote for a candidate who says they want to put some minimal constraints on corporations that are polluting the environment. But ending gas and uh, oil and running up against those major interests? Never. Challenging the pharmaceuticals and demanding that pharmaceuticals be made either available free for everyone by the government taking it over and making it free or making it available depending on your income so that poor people are no longer denied. Well, never. That will never happen because everybody's just out for themselves. We have to change the discourse from I, what's in my interest, to we, what's in our interest. What I'm trying to tell you in all these ways is we need to go with a much deeper vision of what a liberal and progressive politics should be about. It's not just about this particular reformer. That's, it's about a set of values and a way of looking at reality that is a fundamental transformation of what politics could and should be. And if we don't go there, well, we're already on the path to disaster. The only way we're going to change that is by changing the discourse in some very fundamental ways that even go beyond Bernie and where, where he's at. But, at le you know, so... Not that I'm against Bernie, I love him, but that go to a much more fundamental transformation of the way we are heard, the way we are understood, and the way we see other human beings. This goes to the last point, the movement that we can create to do this. And I'm here to try to convince you 
to join such a movement, to build such a movement with me. And obviously, I don't expect that to happen right away. We are doing trainings for people who want to be involved in what we're calling prophetic empathy, that is, caring for people, but also introducing a prophetic empathy, a prophetic element into the empathy that we get. We're, we're training people in that. What I want to say to you is, if anything I've said to you makes sense, join with us in some way. So the question is, since I've talked about the new bottom line before for many years, what's different in this historical moment? And what's different is that the society is in deeper crisis than it ever was, and more and more people in the liberal and progressive world understand the urgency of figuring out why it is that people who should be with us aren't with us. So there's a greater chance now, I hate to say this, but that'll be even more intense if Trump gets reelected, God forbid. More and more people have come to understand that something is missing in the liberal and progressive world. I think this is what it is that's missing. I am not saying this is the only thing that should be talked about. I'm saying that if you reframe liberal and progressive politics around the new bottom line of love, caring, kindness, and generosity, and affirm people's hunger for higher meaning and purpose, and say that means something a lot to us, too, because the truth of the matter is most people on the left do have that same need. It's not just a need for middle-income working people. It's a need for everybody, okay, that they have it, and there's more likelihood now that they might be able to open to it. I hope it doesn't turn out that it, it's only after the 2020 election being a disaster for the liberal world that they turn this direction. I hope they'll turn more quickly. But the book is not written just about 2020. It's written as a way eventually transforming the liberal and progressive world. But let's say we get Biden. Even let's say Biden wins. The fascism that comes after Biden will be worse than the fascism that came after Trump. Because, of course, Trump will be saying, oh, it was stolen from me and it wasn't fair election and so forth. You get to the, close to the discourse that Hitler used in the 20s and early 30s of the system being fundamentally unfair and has to be torn down. Okay, next question. Yes. The question is, Cornell West goes around the country and talks about in some of these same terms about love and kindness and generosity, and he describes himself as a Christian Marxist. Okay, now, Christian is the part that changes him from being a normal Marxist, okay? You know, Cornell West and I wrote a book together. It's called Jews and Blacks, Let the Healing Begin. So Cornell West is a very unusual figure in the left, and I love him. He's my brother. He's, you know, I'm very close to him. So I would say it's not that he's not a Marxist. He hasn't let that aspect of Marxism shape his consciousness. And that's why, and the way he identifies then is to say, I'm a Christian Marxist, because that Christian tradition has some of this focus on love and caring and generosity. Yeah, I don't know how to summarize what you're saying so, you know, so that it can work, work for the listening audience. I can just say that what she's saying is, wait a second, there are a lot of people in, in the liberal and progressive world who do show love and caring, and they showed it, for example, in caring about the babies that were torn from their mothers and the way that immigrants are treated, and in many other ways. So it might be dangerous for you to be putting out this idea. And actually, from her own experience, she knows from her parents are, she says, full of hate, and uh, other people that she knows around them are full of hate. I want to say, first of all, that I totally acknowledge your experience. Your experience is true for some people. 
a significant section of the right, but not the whole of the right, what I'm saying. That there are other people there who are quite different. And similarly, not of all Christians. Now, if you look at the Pope and what he's talking about, that Pope is one of the most miraculous figures in public life of any sort. And he has made an incredible critique of global capitalism and the way it's destroying the earth. But he's also calling for love, kindness, and generosity. So I don't want to put everybody in the same category, okay? I want to say that there is a section of people who voted for Obama who then ended up voting for Trump. These are not people who are core racists. They were people who voted once or sometimes twice even for Obama, and they knew he was black. So I don't want to deny your experience at all. I'm reporting on other experiences that people have. We need to be able to win back a significant section of the right. That doesn't mean the core racist, sexist, homophobes, xenophobes, etc., who are there and who are shaping current policy. Absolutely right. And there are many, many people who agree with their, uh, their hateful policies, but there are others who are there for a different reason. And those are the people that I think could make the difference between what we need to save the planet. What do we need? We need to be able to pass constitutional amendments. Right now, if, if we were to pass the Green New Deal and even more, the ESRA, the ESRA is the Environmental and Social Responsibility Amendment to the Constitution, and it goes way beyond the Green New Deal to really deal with fundamental transformation of the way we deal with the planet. Now, if we were to pass that, the Supreme Court is going to overturn it and say, this is unconstitutional. You need to have two-thirds of the people of this country in the states ready to support constitutional amendments that would make it possible for us to really save the environment. That's going to require speaking to some of those Christians who even have a variety of right-wing views but aren't locked into their hatefulness. And when we talk about them in a way that makes it seem like we really do believe that they're all haters, we reinforce the success of the right. We need a different discourse that doesn't reinforce that by letting them know that there are many people who are not with us that we care for and respect and think of not as haters, but as people who have taken a turn that we disagree with and we like to explain to them why we think we disagree with it. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for being here. That was Michael Lerner on Faith, Politics, and the Left, part one of a special two-part program. He spoke at the Boulder Bookstore in mid-January 2020. Michael Lerner, editor of Tikkun Magazine, is a leading voice for peace, justice, and spiritual renewal. He's the author of Revolutionary Love. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Each week we feature such progressive voices as Kianga Yamata-Taylor, Matt Taibbi, Noam Chomsky, and Winona LaDuke. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Michael Lerner on Faith, Politics, and the Left, 
and for Rabbi Lerner's book, Revolutionary Love, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. We can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to the Boulder Bookstore. Tim Butler recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary, Alberta, on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, home to the people of the Treaty 7 region and the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3.